Good afternoon. I'm delighted to introduce Omar Barada, who will be leading our last session of the day. Um, this will be a discussion regarding the 55th state with Professor Gilbert Akar and Dr. Andrew Hassan. Omar is a writer, translator, and the director of Dar al Mamun. Located on the outskirts of Marrakesh, Dar al Mamun is a library and residency center for artists, scholars, and translators. Omar has curated public programs at the Centre Pompidou and hosted shows on French national radio. In 2014, he was on the Artistic Steering Committee of the Marrakesh Biennale and a co-director of Dubai's Global Art Forum. Omar has co-edited Expanded Translation, a Treason Treatise, a book of verbal and visual betrayals, and album Cinematheque de Tangier, a multilingual book about film in Tangier and Tangier on film. He has co-translated books by Jalal Toufik and Stanley Cavell into French. More recently, Omar co-curated the Temporary Center for Translation at the New Museum in New York. He is currently a visiting scholar at NYU. Thank you. Thank you, Poppy. And thank you all for being here. I'm very pleased to be having this conversation with uh, Gilbert Ashkar and Andrew Arsen. Um, this is a panel on um, Lebanese migration into Africa. Koyo suggested calling this the 55th state in the context of the 154 African Art Fair. And the, the whole theme, the whole idea of the forum this year in the fair is to try and look at Africa and, as, and at art in Africa beyond the cliche divides that we tend to, to internalize as Jihan al-Tahri who I'm very happy to see in the room, uh, told us yesterday. And in particular, we're trying to look at North Africa and Sub-Saharan Black Africa, this kind of division, and uh, how to look at it otherwise, or to look beyond it. And in a way, this panel is a further complication of the issue or a decentering of this binary, because after all, Lebanon is not in North Africa, however Arab it might be. And uh, also, this panel is, is for us a way to look at Africa as a land of immigration as opposed to the way it's usually looked at, as a land where people leave from. Um, I should perhaps just tell you a few words about our speakers. Uh, Gilbert Ashkar was born in Senegal where he spent part of his childhood. So he has first-hand experience of what we're gonna talk about. He grew up also uh, partly in Lebanon. He lived in Paris, in Berlin, and he now is based in London, has been here for about eight years, and he teaches at, at the School of Oriental and African Studies. He is the co-founder and chair of the Center for Palestine Studies at SOAS. I think this is since 2012. Um, and he has published many books. I'll just give you a few titles. The Clash of Barbarisms, The Making of the New World Order, Perilous Power, the Middle East and U.S. Foreign Policy, co-authored with Noam Chomsky. The Arabs and the Holocaust, the Arab-Israeli War of Narratives. Marxism, Orientalism, Cosmopolitanism. The People Want, a radical exploration of the Arab uprising. And there's a forthcoming title, Moribund, Morbid Symptoms, the Arab Uprising, Five Years On. Um, so his published and scholarly work doesn't directly address the topic of the conversation today, um, which is all the more interesting for us. <laughs> and Andrew Arson is a lecturer in modern Middle Eastern history at, in the Faculty of History at Cambridge and a fellow of St. John's College. So he took a very long train ride to 
come and be with us today. And uh, he is the author of this book. Uh, sorry, I, I left the, the nice jacket, cover. the nice cover in New York. Um, and the title of the book is Interlopers of Empire, the Lebanese Diaspora in the Colonial in colonial French West Africa. And it was published last year, 2014. And this is the first comprehensive history of the Lebanese diasporic communities of French West Africa. Um, and it, it especially addresses the first half of the 20th century, um, though it sort of gives a lot of elements of what came after in towards the end of the book. And it's... Um, it's a history, it's a book of history that also has an anthropological aspect to it because Andrew is trying to reconstruct the fabric of the lives of those migrants. And it also has some theoretical aspects to it because it, it's also trying to provide a new look at what diaspora and diasporic existence um, means. Uh, he will speak first, but before he does, uh, we thought we would show you a video and we'll show a second one afterwards. <coughs> of uh, Samar Media um, did a series of interviews with uh, recently, just this, this year, with um, uh, some Lebanese people in West Africa, in particular in Senegal and in Ivory Coast, and we'll see two of these interviews, and we can look at the first one now. شعب الأفريقي أحسن من عرب أحسن من العرب بألف مرة قلبهم أطيب وأخلاقهم أحسن من من سينغاليز ميل ميل برسا بسبعة برسا ميل برسا زهرة أحمد مروي أحسن خير زوجة زهرة أحمد مروي بي كان شيخ بس بي لما طلع شيخ لقى إنه شيخ بيرع لا إنه يروح يصلي ليقول يروح يجوز واحد ليقول قال لا 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 قالوا لبي واني ما في في هالعيشه راح رايح على كوبا سافر على كوبا يوم اخته اختلفت هي بجوزها باع المحل تبعه واجا لتلقى منه لانه كان ظالم معاها لما رجع لبنان اجى على السنغال بي وامي كانوا هون بالسنغال وقع الحرب ونحن بقينا بلبنان عند خالي أول ناس إجوا على السنغال أنا وأختي بالباتوليوتي إجت لعند أمي وبي كنت تريق ريز وكان في الدار بالدار عند بي شجرة شو اسمه هيدا كراسول ضل عشر سنين ما تحملش السنة اللي جابنا نحن حملت تنتين النهار اللي وصلنا وقعوا على راسنا أول ما إجت لهون زوجي عنده أصحابه كتير ولما تجوزنا إجوا لعنا قال لي يلا بدنا ندر نروح ندر زيارة رحت أول بيت اشتريت حلا اشتريت مشاي اشتريت فستان اشتريت خاتم أنا يعني ما بيعرفوا هاللغة لأني عشت ببيت مسكرة قلت له لا أحمد أنا ما عشت بدي أروح لمطرحة قال لا بدك تروحي قلت له لا رحنا على غير بيت كمان ببيت شيء قلت له أنا بدك تروح مطرح ما بدك تروح أنا هيني ببيتي ما عشت بهرب النسوين شو بيحكوا؟ اشتريت فستان واشتريت مشاي واشتريت كذا انا مش من مش من رايي احكي تاجر احكي بحكي معك من احسن شيء بالتجاره من احسن شيء زوجي كان يشرب من برا يشرب ضاع وبيع 
قلت له لا مش منيح انا بدي اشتغل، بفتح محل بدي اشتغل. انا اللي جبرته ياخذ المحل. كان شغل كثير قاسي. كنا كنا بالبلد كلها زهره وبس. اسمي بالبلد كانت زهره بس، بده حد يجي من البر من موريتانيا من مالي من نمبورت من البر يجي لعند الزهره. قبل ما يكون سنور حلمت فيها انا بالنوم انه طلع 20 متر بالهواء ونزل اخذت القران واعطيته اياه اخته كانت صاحبتي رحت لعند اخته قلت لها انا انا شفت اخوك بالمنام واعطيته قران وفسرت المنام قالوا لي او بيحكم 20 يوم او 20 شهر او 20 سنه وهذا القران تحبي تعطيه اعطيه اخذت القران واعطته اياه بس وحطته على راسه كان مؤمن بالدين بالاديان اثنين كله كان مؤمن، اخته مسيحيه، اخته مسلمه، اخوه مسيحي، اخته مسيحيه مسيحيه. العائله ميلانج كانت ما عندهم فيها فرق، ما ما بيعترفوا فيها هذا، هذا مسيح وهذا مسلم السنغاليه ما بيعترفوا فيها، ما ما بيهمهم. هون مش مثل عندنا نحن لا. في اراب سبابري. On this note, pay Arab I give the floor to Andrew. Um, thank you very much. Thanks, Omar. And I want to thank um, Gilbert as well, um, who's, I subsequently found out, was one of the readers of my book and sort of pushed it um, all the way through to, to publication um, with his encouragement and his um, uh, reflections on the book. Um, so I just want to say a few things about, um, about the Lebanese of West Africa. Uh, and about, I suppose, my, my own personal uh, engagement with this story. Um, it's a slightly odd engagement, and the book is called Interlopers of Empire. In some ways, I'm an interloper in the story. Um, I'm partly Lebanese, I'm mostly Lebanese, but um, I didn't grow up much in Lebanon, and I didn't grow up at all in Africa. I don't have any family links to Africa. Um, so my family is not one of those that did migrate from the Eastern Mediterranean, from the Middle East uh, to West Africa. Um, so for me, Coming across, coming on, coming to this subject was really a matter of serendipity and a matter of, um, I suppose, a happy, a happy clash of subjects. In my last year as an undergraduate at university um, in Cambridge, I was studying African history, and unlike most of my cohort, um, I didn't want to study East and South Africa. I wanted to study West Africa. Um, I spent a whole term kind of studying pre-colonial and colonial West Africa. Um, and I was looking for, I knew I wanted to do a master's, and I was looking for a subject that I could somehow, where I could somehow ally, bring together, meld together um, my interest in the Middle East, which was developing at the time, and my interest in West Africa. Um, and I was talking to my supervisor, my teacher at the time, and I said, do you know anything about the Lebanese West Africa? And the only personal connection I did have with that story was during the Civil War, um, when business in Lebanon was uh, difficult, um, my dad, my father, went out to Liberia, to Sierra Leone, for a few months. Um, and he told me a few stories that stuck in the mind, in the back of the mind. And I think that set me on a journey, and somehow it made sense to work, um, to bring together um, Lebanon, to bring together West Africa, and to think about migration, to think about displacement, to think about diaspora, something that I was already trying to think through um, at the time in some of my um, 
undergraduate work. So really, happenstance. Um, you know, one of those happy coincidences that mean they end up spending more or less a decade working on something. Um, and that bring you to places like this. Um, so just to flesh out a little bit what we saw with Zahra and that story, um, nowadays there are probably about, the numbers range um, anywhere between 150 and 300,000 um, Lebanese across West Africa. Um, there, there are no kind of exact figures that I've seen, only estimates. Um, so demographically not insignificant um, and now spread much further than they were during the colonial period, um, all the way from Mauritania to Angola to the DRC, elsewhere. Again, kind of very mobile and looking always um, in a very contingent way, very strategic way for new business opportunities, new economic opportunities as they present themselves, and moving into new markets in the DRC in Angola. Um, but as Omar said, I was interested not so much in the contemporary um, situation of the Lebanese in West Africa, their contemporary economic role, which remains a, a significant one, a weighty one, but in the early uh, history of that. And I was specifically interested in trying to move away from the focus on their economic lives. Um, rightly or wrongly, I mean, Zahra kind of says, you know, why would you want to talk about kind of slippers and rings, you know, what matters to me is business. Uh, and in some ways, business or commerce, trade, has been... Um, the way in which the Lebanese have been defined and the way in which the Lebanese have defined themselves um, as actors within West Africa, um, as diasporic um, actors. Um, there's a story that, the, that I mentioned in the book that the anthropologist, Fouad Khoury, oh, yes. um, talks about. And he, a Lebanese anthropologist trained in the US who did a lot of his field work in Kumasi um, and in Sierra Leone, in Ghana and Sierra Leone, and um, was traveling, I think, into Ghana at the time and was asked for his nationality, and said Lebanese. And the border guard says, no, I'm not asking you for your occupation, I'm asking you for your nationality. And somehow, you know, that, that sense of ethnic identity, of nationality, overlapping with um, occupation so very strongly, hints at the, well, more than hints, kind of signals very strongly the way in which the Lebanese have been defined by others, um, by, by French and British colonial administrators in the first half of the century, and also by African states and by African um, citizens in the post-colonial period, but also the way in which they define themselves and make sense of their own presence in West Africa and sort of justify their own presence in West Africa as necessary, useful um, economic actors and economic agents who can play a beneficent part, a beneficial part in the development of uh, post-colonial states as they once argued they would have done in colonial states. Um, so I wanted to move away from that focus on the economics of the story, and try and get a sense of some of that, the, the personal feel, the personal texture of life. Um, as Hamad was saying, um, I was interested in understanding the tones, the textures, the sense of everyday life, what it feels like, um, what it means to live in diaspora, kind of the sensuous, everyday sensory experience of living uh, in migration, living in movement, living in diaspora. Um, and I also wanted to understand the ambivalence of diasporic existence. And it seemed to me that the Lebanese in West Africa, at least in the colonial period, um, were sort of like um, a photo taken of a runner in motion. Um, it would take, you know, so standing still, seeming, seemingly still, seemingly static, and yet always poised for motion. Um, and there was that ambivalence there that even though they 
uh, made roots in Senegal and elsewhere in West Africa. Even though they founded families, they founded businesses that often um, they sustained across generations, handed down from parents to children over several generations. There was always an ambivalence there about their place within Africa um, and an attempt to um, situate themselves as well within the Middle East and within um, in other locales to find another place in which to place themselves. Um, and there was also kind of an academic justification to the project. And I don't want to kind of go on too much about this, but um, there has been a, ten a tendency in anthropology as well as in history, as well as in sociology and other disciplines, to, to try and look for prehistories of globalization, right? So try and, to f try and find precedents, useful precedents, um, for our very interconnected, very networked present. Um, and there's a tendency to glorify um, the circulatory, to glorify people who move um, within that, the mobile subject, um, an infatuation with networks, um, with connections across borders, with the ways in which mobile subjects can transcend borders, can cut across borders, um, can um, uh, completely pass over ridicule borders. And there's also um, a hope, an aspiration to find in diaspora. Um, in the past, there's construed either as kind of pre-national or as transnational. Um, the inklings, the makings of a post-national future. So there's an, an emancipatory political project there um, that I wanted to try and think about a little bit more and kind of subject uh, a little bit to, to uh, critique and to revision. So I wanted this book, I wanted my work to be not about people who seem to live outside of space, outside of particular places, just simply in movement, simply in travel to try and locate them within particular spaces, and in particular to locate them within um, the terrain of everyday life. Um, so what I wanted to write was what some people have called an effective history. Right? So a history of, as I said, the textures of everyday life, um, what it felt like to live in the world, to be beings who lived in movement, but who also came to settle for a time in particular places. Um, wanted to think about their social practices, um, their social habits, how they socialized, um, what the patterns of their everyday life were, the routines and rhythms of everyday life, um, what their everyday strategies were, what they might have eaten, how they might have dressed, how they might have tried to reconstruct or not reconstruct um, what were seen as the ways of home. Um, and also their understandings of the political, their understandings of themselves as selves, their understandings of community. So towards the end of that clip, Zahra talks about, you know, the Senegalese don't, you know, they don't care about Muslim and Christian and, you know, they don't pay much heed to confessionism, to sectarianism. Um, so, you know, just how much weight uh, the Lebanese in movement did place on religious belonging and on sectarianism uh, and on different understandings, different registers of community um, and of self, how they define themselves. Um, and also, because you can't neglect that entirely, their economic tactics and their economic circumstances. Um, so I really wanted to follow my subjects into that crowded, that chaotic, contingent um, realm of the everyday. And the films, actually, I, I'd never seen these films before, before Homer sent me the link a couple of days ago, and they, there's a sense of that, um, the granularity of everyday life, kind of the, you know, the graininess of the everyday. So I wanted to think about um, diaspora 
And I wanted to try and rethink kind of two dominant prisms of diaspora, the way that we think about diasporic subjects. One is, um, as I said, a tendency to glorify uh, certain categories of people who move, right? And this is very pertinent, very germane at the minute. Certain categories of people who move who have the access to so social capital, the access to economic capital, to be treated as, or to define themselves as cosmopolitans, people who can move easily across borders and slip easily across borders. And then against them, people who are seen as just um, as locals. No matter where they move, no matter how much they move, no matter how many new places they go to, always end up being defined by sociologists, by anthropologists, by historians, as resolutely local. People who are only interested in replicating um, the ways of home, who lack the ambition to be truly cosmopolitan in their lives, to manufacture new ways of being for themselves. Right? And that kind of seemed a very um, unpleasant normative distinction, a very unpleasant way of kind of distinguishing between you know, uh, good people who move who are somehow kind of cosmopolitan, um, free-spirited, uh, you know, unshackled of all the kind of nasty preoccupations of nation and place, and then people who are somehow just parochial and circumscribed in their worldview, circumscribed in their ambitions. Um, that seemed a, a problematic way of thinking. The other way of thinking about diaspora that I wanted to try and address and engage with head on was a very strong strain of thought to think of diaspora as somehow um, emblematic of our, what Edward Said called our generalized condition of homelessness. But somehow all of us in the world that we live in now, in this very late modern world, are um, made up of fragmented identities um, and essentially homeless, no matter whether we've moved or not, whether we've circulated and migrated or not, but we, are, we lack moorings and belongings. Um, and the Lebanese in West Africa, in some ways, seemed to fit that story, but in others, they didn't. Um, they found ways of accommod accommodating themselves to their new locales, of situating themselves in their new locales, um, which didn't seem to fit into that story. Um, and this was a very personal impression, an impression based very much on textual sources, right, on things that I'd read. So actually speaking to Gilbert about this, speaking to other um, people who've grown up in West Africa who've spent time there is, is, for me, a really interesting experience and sometimes a very strong contrast between what I pulled out, the text that I was reading in colonial archives, and people's own archives of memory and of recollection. And finally, I was just interested in the difference that one sees with the coming of independence, right? The time of independence, the 40s and 50s, at the moment of uh, a sure moment of emancipation, of optimism, but also in some ways a moment of closure, a moment that closed down certain apertures, certain openings for diasporic subjects. Um, people like the Lebanese now had to define themselves much more clearly as being in one place or another. Um, and I think that um, the coming of post-colonial states in the 40s and 50s and 60s um, created issues for the Lebanese not so much necessarily in West Africa, but much more in Lebanon itself. Um, and the very large Lebanese diaspora, in a sense, lost its place in some ways within Lebanon. It only holds a very ambivalent connection to Lebanon. Um, so I wanted to try and think about diaspora not in that kind of very ahistorical way, right? That we have of thinking of diaspora, um, a very general, very abstract way of thinking of diaspora, but very much situating it in a particular historical experience, the experience of particular communities, of particular places, at a particular moment, and the way in which the, that particular context, um, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
just the events of that moment, the processes of that very particular moment, the late colonial moment and the post-colonial, the early post-colonial moment, created a sense of living in diaspora, a sense of living in travel and movement. Um, so the way in which kind of it's, diaspora is a product of history, product very much of very real processes and structures, um, rather than some abstract um, thing out there. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll leave it there. We'll have a chance to discuss further and to take questions. Um, I will ask Gilbert also to react to this and give us some personal, I mean, some of his own ideas on the matter, but I just wanted to see a, a different, and a second one of those videos and a different kind of um, testimony. Les nombreux Libanais de Ndakarou s'adonnaient au commerce depuis des générations. Contrairement à la situation dans leur pays d'origine, la communauté libanaise comptait des chiites et des sunnites, mais ces affiliations religieuses n'affectaient pas leur homogénéité locale. Ils réhabilitaient des structures sanitaires et faisaient des dons, mais n'épousaient pas les femmes du pays. Au début, les hommes venaient seuls et dans les régions, ils prenaient parfois des épouses. Les femmes mixtes, Oyek, Awad, Amalem, Odar et ailleurs, étaient bien connues. Plus tard, les nouveaux migrants sont venus avec leurs épouses. Je suis Lina Husseini, je suis née à Dakar en 1965. Je suis éditrice au Sénégal, je gère la maison d'édition, les éditions et diffusions Athéna. Je suis revenue au Sénégal pour travailler avec mes cousins dans le secteur des matériaux de construction pour ouvrir plusieurs filiales en Afrique de l'Ouest. Et ensuite, j'avais vraiment envie d'un changement. Et donc, je me suis dit pourquoi ne pas ouvrir une librairie puisque je suis une grande lectrice et que j'aime le livre. J'aime le livre, ce qu'il représente, son contact. Et j'ai ouvert ma librairie, la librairie Athéna, en 2006, qui a été une aventure extraordinaire, aussi bien dans les échanges culturels avec le Sénégal et le Sénégalais, qu'avec euh, l'ensemble des pays francophones. Euh, les, le contact avec les lecteurs, de quelque horizon qu'ils puissent avoir été, a été magique, même si ça n'a pas toujours été très facile, parce que mon engagement... Euh, m'empêcher d'acquérir une certaine aisance financière, j'ai été confrontée euh, à certains défis qui étaient d'être moi-même avec mes convictions et de, de ne pas accepter ce que moi j'estimais être inacceptable, c'est-à-dire la censure, euh, euh, la vente d'un point de vue uniquement commercial et non pas d'un point de vue culturel. Mon envie est que mes livres soient le plus distribués au Sénégal et après un petit peu ailleurs, puisque, puisque la maison d'édition a pour euh, objectif une triangulaire Dakar, Paris, Beyrouth. Euh, mais aujourd'hui, je suis plus distribuée à l'extérieur que je ne le suis dans mon propre pays, en fait. Et je trouve, ça, euh, je trouve ça dommage et dommageable pour la culture au Sénégal. On ne peut pas penser et travailler dans les mots 
sans être amoureux des mots et par conséquent sans être tenté par cette déclaration d'amour pour les mots qu'est l'écriture romanesque ou l'écriture poétique. Il y a Suleyman Bachir Diagne euh, qui a écrit un livre, L'encre des savants, qui reprend une phrase d'un philosophe arabe qui dit euh, « l'encre des savants plutôt que le sang des martyrs ». Pour moi, euh, l'écriture, la lecture peuvent régler tous les mots, grâce à des mots, tous les mots du monde. Donc ce serait bien qu'on puisse donner au livre la place qu'il mérite en fait, hein. au livre et à la culture en général. Je pense qu'être qu né et avoir vécu au Sénégal hein, a été une très grande chance pour moi et pour beaucoup de Libanais parce que nous avons vécu vraiment dans un cocon, dans, une, dans un environnement euh, très chaleureux, au contact de plusieurs cultures, la culture sénégalaise, la culture des expatriés, la culture libanaise qui reste et qui restait prédominante dans tous les cas, mais qui était atténuée ou renforcée ou modifiée par le contact euh, avec les autres cultures. Entre le Liban et le Sénégal, ou le Liban et l'Afrique de l'Ouest, il y a une complémentarité, il y a une fraternité qui existe entre le, le, le Libanais et le Sénégalais, mais c'est « je t'aime, moi non plus ». Dès qu'il va y avoir un problème quelconque, on va dire « ah, tout ça c'est la faute des Nards, des Libanais okay ». Après, euh, nous les Libanais, on ne se comporte pas toujours comme il faut non plus, quand on, est, euh, quand on a une certaine position par rapport aux Sénégalais. Donc c'est « je t'aime, moi non plus ». Il y a des choses à régler de la part et d'autre, mais je pense que c'est ce qui existe dans les conflits entre frères. To show the first one only, uh, I think it gives a unilateral image of. Uh, and as you said, of, there are uh, five others if you go to YouTube and yes, look at the exactly. Lebanese and in you, West you, Africa. You'll find, including persons in government and things like that, yeah. of Lebanese yeah. origin. So it's, there is a diversity of the, the diaspora in, in various uh, in various domains, and you have the same actually of, with the Lebanese diaspora in other parts of the world, like uh, South America where you will find them everywhere. Sure. In all classes, in all political shades, and all that. So, so that's, uh, yeah. But uh, indeed, I mean, in commenting on uh, what um, <coughs> Andrew was saying, uh, this uh, close connection between uh, nationality uh, and occupation, uh, uh, as, uh, as you said, Uh, is, uh, of course, a de defining uh, feature of, uh, of, of the role of the community, mm -hmm. which also we find, uh, uh, I mean, uh, throughout space and time mm -hmm. with various other communities. If we think of the Chinese diaspora in, uh, in East Asia, essentially, if we think of the Indian diaspora in Africa, Uh, well, I mentioned the, the, the Lebanese diaspora, and historically you have some populations like the Jewish diaspora, mm. uh, the Lombards for a, sentence, uh, for a, for, for a moment also in Europe. Uh, so uh, communities uh, who for some reasons, uh, whether uh, uh, oppression 
and, and oppression played a role actually in the Lebanese immigration because you have a lot of the minorities under the Ottoman Empire who migrated, Christians, Shia, and the rest. I mean, the, the non-Sunni were the, the overwhelming majority of migrants. Uh, uh, you, you, I mean, you have uh, communities migrating and then uh, specializing in some economic role, uh, which historically becomes the role of, uh, if you want, agents of, uh, of, uh, of, of the uh, of the great transformation, as it's known uh, by Polanyi, that is, agents of the capitalist transformation, uh, agents of the penetration of capitalism, of the capitalist market. And that's the role of practically all the communities I, I mentioned. They, they be, become sp specialized in, in, in the role of uh, intermediaries, traders in particular. And, and hence here, the, the Lebanese played very much that role. And it was actually in, I mean, it was complementary to French colonialism in the sense that the French uh, uh, would not uh, go uh, to those remote areas inside Africa where the Lebanese would go, uh, those coming from poor uh, origins and all that, where were prepared to go to such places and, and become the local trader, the local shopkeeper or whatever, and therefore the first agents of, of this distribution of, of goods which come actually from the metropole within uh, whether the, the, the capital city or the, the French, I mean the, the, colonial, uh, the colonial empire. So they played that role. And the similarity goes beyond that. All those, uh, uh, I mean all those communities uh, playing such a role one, one author whom I mentioned to Andrew in my, my review called that the people class. That is this connection between uh, nationality and, uh, and occupation. Uh, he, he's an author who died in Auschwitz, actually. Uh, because his theory, I mean, his theory was about the Jews, but this applies very much to, to, to everybody, as I said. Uh, they can easily become scapegoated scapegoated, uh, they become the scapegoat of the resentment created by this very development of capitalism of which they are the agents for economic reasons. But they're also, I mean, they're scapegoated and that's the classical scenario by the dominant. That is, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, well, the, the Jews were scapegoated, I mean, in Germany, for instance, were scapegoated by, 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 by uh, uh, I mean, German, uh, German groups, but uh, in the case of, of, uh, of West Africa, French colonialism scapegoated the, 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 the Lebanese, designated the Lebanese to the popular resentment, and they became, became scapegoat. And my father... Using anti-Semitic tropes. Exactly, absolutely, yeah. And, and my, my father, uh, Andrew, knows the book. He has written a book based on his uh, whatever papers he got and some of his articles. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was one of the rare educated persons among the migrants. Uh, he, he finished a PhD in law in, in the 30s in Lyon, in France, and, <laughs> and went there directly. That wasn't his choice. His uh, elder brother imposed that on him. He, I mean, <laughs> that wasn't his vocation at all. So he found himself in, in Africa acting as a trader, uh, industrialist, and things like that. But uh, he used his uh, education in becoming a kind of spokesperson for the community uh, and writing articles replying to French 
scapegoating. So he engaged in such battles, and actually he, he got uh, quite, uh, I mean, he had uh, very good friends in the leading, uh, I mean, the elite of independence in, uh, well, I remember some, I mean, for the Senegalese, very well-known figures in that, uh, uh, in that regard. So this is indeed something uh, uh, very, uh, very interesting. Um, let me also add that there is, I think, a, a big difference, and here you can see it, see it between first-generation migrants and second-generation migrants. Mm. Uh, 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 the the first-generation migrants, especially when you have the, the, the issue of color, uh, race, color of skin, or whatever, uh, will will uh, look at the the the, the African natives. Uh, of course, I mean, we shouldn't hide ourselves behind anything. There is a degree of racism, ob obviously, which, uh, which, uh, which uh, exists. Uh, but when, when, you, you, when you are second generation, when you're born there, and you are schooled there, and here you see the importance of school, the only friend, a classmate I can remember of uh, in, in Kaulak, we used to live in Kaulak, which is, uh, uh, forgot, um, 200 kilometers away from, from Dakar in the interior on the Sina Saloon, the, the, the main river there, uh, was, a, I mean, a, a native. Hmm? So that, that, that makes a, a huge lot of difference in, in your perception of that. And that's why those who were born there and educated and, and all that, many of them identify fully as Senegalese. And, and uh, uh, even though, of course, they can't forget their uh, their roots, because they are on their, on the, in the color of their skin in some way, but, but they, they are much more uh, integrated. And that's why also you have a problem with the waves of uh, immigration, because what uh, Andrew studied is very much the first wave. Mm. But you have had other waves. Um, my father, for instance, is the interwar years, and when France was the colonial uh, power in, in Lebanon, uh, uh, then this went down a, a little, but the, the, the most recent waves are coming mostly from South Lebanon, are mostly Shia, uh, and uh, uh, they, I mean, this is a migration started with the Israel, Israel wars on South Lebanon from the mid-70s, uh, from the 70s onward. Um, and, and then you have traffics, uh, I mean, traffic chains and all that, which contributed to a quite a bad reputation for, for the Lebanese in several African countries, including English-speaking mm. English countries. And, uh, and that, that's uh, part, uh, part of the problem. And these new waves, the, the most recent waves, has, have a much, I mean, quite different attitude towards the locals than the, uh, those who were born there, grew up there, and all that, and then you have a third generation, even now a fourth generation, and that's that's a completely uh, different uh, different story. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Gilbert. Um, I don't know if you want to say something immediately, or um, or if I should ask some questions. Far away, if you want. I mean, I could say something, but I think yeah, I've said enough already. <laughs> I will say some more. Well, I, I wanted to hear more, perhaps, and this is very much at, at the center of your book, about the, the triangle. I mean, one of the two videos had something about the, the... I mean, she was talking about the distribution of her books and the, this 
Triangle, Dakar, Paris, Beirut. Mm -hmm. And the, the, one of the things you say is that the presence, this Lebanese migration into West Africa kind of um, subverts the usual narrative of the colonial narrative, yeah. the binary colonial narrative, because it creates this triangle. And the triangle is also at the very basis of it because a lot of them, at least in the initial wave, came from Marseille, right? They went to France first and then they came from Marseille down. And apparently some of them were trying to go to Cuba or to other places. Yeah. So how did that work out? How did people find themselves going initially? And then a few words about how the triangle yeah. worked um, to expand on what Gilbert was saying. Yeah, I mean, what I should have said right at the very outset was that this migration to West Africa, which begins probably in earnest in the kind of 1890s, 1900s, um, is really part of a much broader wave of migration coming out of the Middle East, um, now Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, and it's a wave of migration that's very much driven by economic considerations, um, by religious persecution to, persecution to an extent, but also by uh, economic considerations wanting to uh, make a better life for oneself as an economic migrant. Um, and just like migrants in the Balkans, migrants from Italy in the same period, uh, from the 1880s onwards, the big rush, quite obviously, is towards North and South America. So a lot of those who come from what's now Lebanon uh, would have headed towards the US primarily, but also Brazil, uh, Mexico, Argentina, Cuba, and they create these very large communities that are still you know, Gilbert was saying kind of very economically weighty, very economically powerful, um, but also politically powerful. So kind of if you've ever read Love in the Time of Cholera or kind of like Chronicle of a Death Foretold, all the Gertia Merkez books, you know, the Caribbean coast of Colombia, for example, um, you know, there's a very strong Lebanese presence, um, Shakira just being one kind of, the, 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 per, the, the one that Lebanese love to pick sel, out. Yeah. One Lebanese success story. Um, but so it's kind of, so I wanted to, in a sense, situate West Africa, which has been overlooked by people who tend to concentrate very much on North America as you know, the lodestone, the place that everyone wants to, wanted to head to, try and write West Africa into that story, um, and also try and write the Middle East into stories of global migration, histories of global migration that hadn't really had a place for the Middle East. Um, you know, there's a great deal of work obviously done on Southern Europe, uh, uh, as well as kind of um, Eastern Europe and the ways of migration from there, but the Middle East, one tends to think of, at the moment, potentially with justification, um, very much as you know, a place where my movement was only driven by violent conflict, by secular animosity, by religious persecution. And it's clear that for some people, for hundreds of thousands of people, that wasn't necessarily, um, it, it was a part of the story, but it wasn't necessarily the, the main driving force. Um, and you know, both of those clips, kind of Zahra clip and Nina, um, show kind of the extent to which movement remains a part of the story. Um, so, uh, you know, Zahra kind of the moving to Cuba, then moving back to Lebanon, then moving to West Africa, that kind of very common pattern of you know, coming and going between the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, and in Nina's case, kind of the attempt to triangulate. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's present in the, in the colonial years, but also increasingly in the post-colonial years, you know, you have attempts to, um, to find a place of safe settlement, which is neither West Africa, um, nor Lebanon. Um, Lebanon because of the Civil War from the 70s onwards, Lebanon, West Africa because of fears of scapegoating or because of discomfort. Um, so people moving to London, moving to Paris, moving to Marseille, 
and you know, trying to create a post-colonial triangle between the Middle East, uh, Europe, and West Africa. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I know, I mean, you must know quite a few people who have followed that kind of trajectory, kind of living not lives between two places, but triangulating constantly, kind of between um, London or Paris and West Africa and, and Middle East. But there are also, I mean, Gilbert mentioned it, and it's apparent in some of the other videos that we can't, for reasons of time, see here, but there are people who have settled and consider mm -hmm. themselves as much as Zahra, a thousand percent uh, yeah. Senegalese <laughs> or Ivoirian, and who are part of government. I mean, there's an interview with the Minister of, of uh, Pesh, uh, of, of, fisheries. Of, uh, of Fisheries in, in Senegal, etc. Um, I was wondering about differences between Lebanese communities in different West African countries. Mm. I suppose it's not the same thing to be in Senegal and to be in Ivory Coast and to be in Guinea, or, or is it? Um, I think there are more uh, similarities than differences. Yes. Uh, yeah, you can take, you know, uh, the Afrique Occidentale Francaise was, was one block. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only after the independences that this cut, got cut into several countries. So therefore, you have a kind of homo, I mean, more homogeneity, as I said, than, than difference. And actually, uh, one important part of the Lebanese migrants left Africa at the moment of the independence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they, they were there, then they, that, that's the ambiguity. They, they could uh, uh, regard themselves as, at the same time, part of the, this uh, setup where you have the French ruling uh, the country. And once you got the, the independence, they, some of them believed that this might become uh, you know, a hostile place for, uh, for them. Uh, in the same way that the country is getting rid of the French. And they left, but uh, others are important. Uh, I don't have any, any idea of the figures. Mm. I don't know if Andrew has found any figures on that. But uh, others remained and, uh, and you know, uh, developed their roots uh, um, in, 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 in the country. And you, know, mm. you, you will find them at, uh, I mean, in, in very various, uh, various uh, Levels of, uh, mm -hmm. of of society, e even here. I mean, th this this uh, Zahra, this person. I mean, we haven't. We don't. I don't know much about her, but she doesn't seem to be a very. I mean, unless she has a huge uh, uh, fortune in some drawer or something like this. But she doesn't look, at least, uh, you know. And uh, it's obvious that her origin is a quite uh, quite modest one. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have people. You know, we can tell that they are middle class, like the second yeah. video, that they have culture and all that. And you need to be middle class to be able to triangulate. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's not. For the rest, it's, it's between Lebanon and, uh, and Africa. Uh, Paris is no choice for a lot of people. Sure. So it, you need to be middle class, you need to be uh, real uh, francophone, but that's, uh, that's uh, not a major problem. It is a problem for recent waves of migration where you don't have this, mm. and therefore where the identification with Paris is very limited. And even all religion plays a role here. The Christians would tend much more to identify with France because France played, even from the time of the Ottomans, through the missions, the, the mm. uh, Catholic uh, missions and all that, played a major role in linking the Maronites, in, in particular, as Catholics, to, to France the, the, as the protector country. But, I mean, just to tack on to that, one interesting thing about, um, I guess, you know, 
the, about post-Civil War Lebanon and the politics of France, and well, France in particular in Lebanon. I mean, the, the French cultural centers, all those that have opened in, since 1990, since the end of the Civil War, most of those that have opened have been in the south of the country, in the predominantly kind of Shia uh, part of the country. And partly it's kind of trying to move away from that you know, traditional attachment to the Christian communities, the Maronites in particular, but partly it's also because they realize there's a market there. You know, people want to learn French and they want to learn French they can go to West Africa, not so they can go to France. I mean, that's what, you know, people want to exactly. still kind of keep going to Ivory Coast and to Senegal, um, to Guinea, to Mali, um, you know, other points in Francophone West Africa. And it, the schools are full. I mean, you know, the night schools, kind of, you know, adults trying to learn French to be able to make that journey themselves. So it keeps reproducing itself. Um, yeah, I mean, there's still an image of... Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, with, with, a, with a perception of Africa as... Uh, a land to make money, you know, and yeah. uh, and uh, and that's why I was saying these recent waves of migration. How very French of them! <laughs> no, no, I mean this is different. It's uh, uh, because you know the, the Lebanese would. Uh, I mean, uh, if if they have any racist or superiority complex toward the French, is the contrary. So it's a kind of gradation, you know, you know. You know? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, it's part of the story. You know? I was wondering if you have any elements to add of comparison with the Lebanese in, in Anglophone West African mm. countries. I mean, your study has very much to do with, yeah. with the AOF, I mean, the French, but... Well, I mean, initially, you know, when I was... I don't know if the numbers compare at all, or if... Yeah, I mean, the numbers compare, I mean, particularly Nigeria, particularly Sierra Leone, yeah. um, Ghana to a lesser extent, but yeah, I mean, but, um, but for me, I mean, initially I wanted to work on West Africa as a whole. Um, you know, I was 21, I thought you could you just do all of West Africa in a PhD. Um, but that turned out to be slightly more than I could manage in four years. Um, so I concentrated on French West Africa. Um, in terms of similarities and differences, I think part of it is that um, there was a, a, a conscious desire to triangulate um, through francophonie, through the notion of kind of a, a common cultural legacy um, on the part of people like Sidas Sangar or Fouad Bouigny, and also kind of at that moment of the 50s and 60s through third worldism and um, a form of non-alignment, uh, a kind of, uh, you know, um, African civilization and Arab civilization, um, you know, had a great deal in common and were seen to have a great deal in common at that time. So there was a conscious effort to, to integrate the Lebanese within that kind of using that third world um, rhetoric that was very much alive at that time. Um, I, I get the sense that in certain Anglophone countries, um, there was a different sort of political discourse. In Sierra Leone in particular, um, I think a greater stress on indigeneity, right? So on having African blood, not being born on African soil, right? So I mean, the constitution has changed for particular reasons uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, to make it that one has to have African blood and um, to be a citizen. So it's not a question of kind of use soli, it's a question of use sangui, kind of, you know. Um, and Liberia is similar. Um, so there are, there are differences in the way in which the Lebanese are kind of integrated or not within kind of regimes of citizenship and kind of nationality. And then all that means in terms of having, you know, being able to hold property, et cetera. Um, Ghana is an interesting place because Nkrumah in the 50s and 60s says, um, right, well, you know, as traders, you're clearly parasitic and um, we should Africanize trade. However, you've accumulated this capital and therefore you could be quite useful as um, 
in a force for development, for industrial development. So he said, okay, you're trading businesses, you're gonna transfer them over to Africans, um, but, use, but you can keep your capital and transfer that capital into industrial <coughs> development. So Lebanese begin to work, you know, furniture factories, logging, things that in some ways they still have a share in in Ghana. Um, so there was a way in which that discourse of development was kind of, and of the intermediary of the middleman of the broker, kind of was, was played around with at a particular moment. They didn't simply scapegoat them, they said, okay, you have a useful part to play, but this isn't the part that you're gonna play. Um, if, you, if you're gonna have a contribution to make to independent Ghana, it's gonna be um, in this way, kind of in developing you know, industry, developing secondary sector. I have another question that also relates to something that we heard in the video, in, in the excerpt from the Ken Bugul text that Lena was, was reading, which said they didn't marry the women of the country, yeah. uh, or later they came with their own wives, or mm. you know, they would go to Lebanon to look for a wife and bring her back to West Africa. And I guess this is understandable in the context of the colonial period where the Lebanese would, I mean, their role or their, the way they, they, they conceived of their role is this kind of middlemen and on, as you say, the margins or the immediate margins of whiteness, as it were. And I guess that was important. But post-independence, um, and in the context of people who are deciding to stay and considering these as their countries, has there been more intermarrying? Um, um, or is it, or is there very much a, a sort of clinging to something that can, a, a, the possibility of a Lebanese identity con conserved as such? I don't know if, if uh, Andrew has any figures on all that. I mean, I don't have. But uh, just like this from the top of my head, I would say that would certainly remain quite marginal, mm -hmm. uh, intermarriage. I think this is quite marginal. Uh, well, after all, uh, even in uh, non-migrant communities, sometimes you have uh, endogenous marriages being the rule. So there you have so many factors uh, included here which are different. You know, the, the, uh, if you take the Lebanese diaspora, uh, the, the only area of the world where it is completely and fully integrated is the Americas. Mm -hmm. But th that's because, because the Americas are land of migrants. I mean, there are natives, of course, but uh, those who, who made the modern uh, societies there and, and are dominant are, the, are, are all of migrants' origin. And that's how the, 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 the integration there is completely, uh, I mean, if you take Latin America, you had uh, heads of state of Lebanese origin, you have artists, you have uh, uh, revolutionaries, you have, uh, every, yeah, I mean, you have every kind of people. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, I mean you have millions, actually, of people of, of, uh, of Lebanese origin. They used to say that uh, Sao Paulo uh, is the uh, largest Lebanese city in the world, uh, that there are more people of Lebanese origin in Sao Paulo than in Beirut. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> But that's different, yes. In, uh, in Africa, it, uh, I mean, in, in West Africa, it, it, it never acquired such proportion for, for, because people were conscious of the fact that you couldn't integrate uh, like in lands of migrants, like the Americas or Australia later. And therefore, the migrants to Africa uh, uh, would go there with the project of going back to Lebanon. Now, many of them ended up staying there and building roots, but uh, initially their project was to go make money and, and get back. 
that's uh, the, the, the dominant, which was not the view of those going to the Americas, not only because the distance, which is much, uh, much longer, but because the Americas were regarded as lands of, you know, the, the promised land or the, 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 the El Dorado or whatever, but, you know, a, a land to which you, you, you migrate for, for good. And indeed, the, the, the links between those who went to the Americas and Lebanon are much uh, thinner, if you want, if, or sometimes inexistent, than between those who are in Africa. Even this uh, very old woman that we have seen, I mean, she, uh, she, 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 she her, her way of being, I mean, it indicates anyhow her, her, I think, intimate connection still going on with Lebanon, because her way of being, her way of speaking and everything shows it. Her bodily gesture. Yes. <laughs> But I was asking the question also thinking of something I read recently. I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, a publication called Chimarenga that's done in South Africa. Mm. Um, and that has a, another publication that goes uh, with it called Chimarenga, uh, the, the Chimarenga Chronic. Mm. And the Chronic did, uh, its most recent issue is devoted to Arab-African relations, and it was done entirely in Arabic, at least mm -hmm. the print run, and they called it Muzmin, which is a way of saying chronic. And in it, there's an article by somebody called Nisreen Kaj, who is, uh, I guess, who is somebody who grew up in Nigeria of a Lebanese father and a Nigerian mother. And um, it was kind of interesting to read her text because it posed the question of this interracial marriage and in this particular context of somebody in that situation going back to Lebanon mm. to live and to study, which she did. And I'll just read a little passage from her text. Um, she talks about the first time she went to Lebanon at age five during the civil war and then she goes back at age um, 16. And I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. And she says, by the first month of my first year there, I had learned how to walk. I walked everywhere, whenever I could, into newly acquired independence. I learned to navigate Beirut's web of beautiful streets that went up and down at every turn with ease. I also learned I was Ethiopian, Sudani, Sri Lankan, not Nigerian, and never Lebanese. I became the maid, the prostitute. I was immoral, unintelligent, filthy. I was exotic, samra, tanned, and surprisingly fluent in English. As weeks rushed by, I became invisible. People would walk past without a glance as I held a door open for them, and they would respond to the white friend next to me when, even though I was the one who had asked for directions. Um, at other times, I was so visible that mothers would anxiously question sons about my presence. Teenagers would follow me and chant, Sharmuta, Sharmuta, and police would rudely demand my iqama, resident permit, only to be surprised at being handed my ikhraj um, al-Aid, some apologizing for the mistake made, although the seconds before and after discovering my legal Lebanese-ness, mm. I was the same person, etc. Yeah. I mean, there's several layers to that. I mean, the politics of walking in Lebanon. Um, yeah, I mean, when I walk in Lebanon, I mean, I don't look particularly Lebanese, but people take me for... They don't take me for a domestic worker, they take me for any kind of foreigner. Because people don't walk. If you can, you, you drive anywhere. <laughs> walk, walk, I mean, walk, uh, the, walking is seen for people who can't afford to or are made to walk. Can't afford to drive or are made to walk, right? Um, 
But I mean, that actually brings to mind, um, there was a great project done um, in Beirut a couple of years ago. Uh, they staged kind of in the, uh, what is one of the few theaters in Beirut, Masah um, al-Majina, uh, a, a performance by about 15 or 16 collect, um, domestic workers, migrant workers from across uh, Africa. So there weren't any South Asian workers or, um, yeah, African workers. And the, the whole point of the exercise was, was not only to confront um, Lebanese with their own prejudices and their own racisms, but also to, I suppose, to remind them of the fact that their country was a third world country. So there were a few, I mean, a few of the things were kind of, um, you know, so Cameroonian said, you know, in my country we have civil marriage, which you don't have in Lebanon, right? Or a Senegalese said, in my country we've got electricity more or less 24 hours a day, which you definitely don't have in Lebanon. Um, and kind of, you know, a whole set of ways of just confronting the Lebanese with, um, yeah, disquieting, discomforting home truths um, <laughs> about, about Lebanon and its relationship to, to Africa. And that can presume superiority to Africa as well as other points kind of in the post-colonial world. Um, yeah. Perhaps we should open to questions. Just wait for the microphone and perhaps state your name before uh, speaking for the archive. We have one over there and one. Go. It's, I think that hand was raised first and then Jihan. <laughs> All right. Hi there. Um, Can yeah. you say your name? Oh, okay. I'm uh, M.H. Sarkis, I'm Lebanese as well, and everything you said has struck a chord with me because I was raised in Nigeria for 17 years, and um, I came here seven years ago, so I've, I've been seeing kind of all of the sides that you've been talking about, and with regards to Nasreen Kaj, I've been also following her work, and this is in, in no way discounting racism or anything in Lebanon, but she also mentioned that probably there's some subconscious things in the Lebanese psyche where during colonialism, colonial times in Lebanon, um, there were some um, West African soldiers mm. who were brought to Lebanon to kind of enforce French colonial rule. Um, what else was I going to say? I guess it's not really a question, but more of statements and also like to hear your thoughts about it. Um, I feel like there's always going to be, no matter how, how long we're going to stay in West Africa, we're always, always going to be seen as the other. And I don't know if this relates to, you know, our skin, our lack of integration, but our DNA, I, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's, a, well, it, it's not, it's not we, I mentioned the factor of the skin, if you want, the color, or whatever, which of course is, is a factor. But after that, it depends on the role you play, you know. Uh, I remember very well a friend of my family, of Lebanese origin, was a doctor who's a close comrade, if you want, of the, the Rassemblement Démocratique Africain, the, 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 the people who led independence in West, uh, in West Africa, and he was very much involved with them. Uh, I have also known someone of my generation who was a leader of the high school lycéen movement in 1968 in Dakar. And that is a high level of integration, yeah, to be involved in, in, the, in the leadership even. 
And after all, you know, you had integrations of that kind in South Africa, for instance, and the, the national liberation movement in mm -hmm. South Africa. You have, uh, you have a lot of uh, people, uh, white people who, who are very much part of that. So it depends on the role you do, you know. If you are, I mean, if you are racist, which is the case of a lot of, uh, of the Lebanese, uh, still this, and as part of the Arabs in general, this uh, vision of the, the black people, which is often quite racist, you know, to the point of still using the term slave, I mean, in Arabic, to designate the, the, the black people, Abid. Uh, I mean, if you have this attitude, of course, you, you, you'll, you'll be seen very much at the other, and, uh, and I would say to a certain degree, fortunately, okay? But if you are, you know, if you, if you, if you, I mean, if you have an, an attitude of integration with the community and, and working with it, and you feel yourself as a Senegalese, really, for instance, or a Nigerian, for that matter, or whatever, then I think uh, the matter comes, I mean, the skin becomes something transparent. Just one, one small thing. I mean, I've got one of my best friends in London um, is Lebanese, but grew up in Kano. Um, so he was about 11. And so, you know, we're getting the night bus back um, and there'll be kids speaking in pigeon and then he'll um, just break into conversation with them and kind of the way in which there's, there's a different sense of diaspora there that kind of, you know, the commonality is with, um, you know, British Nigerian kids who are speaking in pigeon on night bus. And, you know, the, and, you know one night at home it'll be shawarma, the other it'll be uh, kasava, kind of, you know, the way in which she slips back between registers is, I've always found it fascinating. I told him I was gonna write a PhD on his family, but he got a bit scared, so I, I, <laughs> I wrote it about anything, everything but his family. But, um, yeah, I mean, the way in which kind of that sense of belonging changes, yeah. We'll take uh, second question. Am I allowed the question and the comment? Yes, and, <laughs> okay. and you, ha you still have to say your name. For uh, Jehan Altari. Um, uh, well, f first a question uh, mm -hmm. to Andrew. Uh, when you were talking about the early migrations, to what extent, it, it was the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, mm -hmm. and there wasn't sort of like the, the actual borders of that region yeah. were quite, um, so why do we always think of it a, as just Lebanese migration. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the book, I tend to talk about it as Eastern Mediterranean migration. Um, sure. And when I, when I talk about it as Lebanese, it tends to be quite specifically about people from the Ottoman province of Mount Lebanon. So I try and be as pernickety and as precise about the terminology as possible. And of course, the, the French, um, the, the, the British in Sierra Leone and elsewhere call them Syrians, regardless of where they were from, whether yes, they came from Lebanon or... In, uh, in Latin South America, they yeah. call them Turcos. Yeah. So all of them are yeah. Turks. Because they came with uh, t uh, Ottoman passports. Yeah. They were Ottoman citizens. I mean, subjects, if you But the French call them Syro-Lebanese. So they tried to, you know, basically anybody from the Mandate States, from Syria or Lebanon, they were Syro-Lebanese. Yeah. And they just came up with this compound yeah. term for it. But, but yeah. in, in Latin America, it depends on your class, you know. The rich are called Lebanese, and, even, and the poor are called Turcos or, or Syrians. It's, uh, it's a matter of, of degree, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I guess my question was, did, was it specifically a, a group that was more prone to migrating to Africa, is my question. So, um, Mount Lebanon in particular kind of experienced a higher rate of migration than other parts of the region of 
greater serial below the sham. Um, for very particular reasons, economic as much as kind of political and, and religious. Um, it was much more integrated into the world market at the time, and that created kind of networks of, created a particular kind of economic relationship with Europe and then with other parts of the world. Um, but, I mean, even in the early 20th century, you have people coming from uh, Jebel Hamid, so kind of the Shia region, kind of, which wasn't in Lebanon at the time, which was in the province of Beirut or the province of Damascus. Um, so, but yeah, but for very specific historically contingent reasons, there's, there's a high rate of migration, not just to West Africa, but to Latin America, to the US, from a very, very small sliver of land, actually, in Mount Lebanon. I mean, it's a small, at the time, it was a tiny province. I mean, Lebanon's a small country, but Mount Lebanon was a small place. So, I mean, probably a, a quarter of its inhabitants migrated at one point or another. Many of them did return, but it was a very high rate of migration. And comment about racism. <laughs> um, I think just to comment on what you're saying, I don't know if uh, there's, there's a curator called Keith Sheary, who, Keith Sheary, uh, who's Zimbabwean and has been living in Lebanon for a while. And for years, he, his children are Lebanese and the rest of it, and even friends that know it, still refer to him, oh yes, the black man. Yeah. It's as though he's the only black man in town. But I, the, 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 the reason I want to make a, a comment is that the Arab world, North Africa and the, uh, mm. uh, the Asian side, uh, we do have a tendency to look at the other I mean, even when, when Iraq invaded Kuwait and all the Kuwaitis came to Egypt, mm. um, I mean, the Egyptians had just come back from working as laborers in Kuwait. They, there was so much racism against the Kuwaitis, so this, this distinction, so I guess my comment is more about the tendency to look at the other with a kind of racist perspective, not just in terms of color, but in terms as the other mm. is, is uh, what? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's, uh, it plays in the same way. The Kuwaitis are seen as privileged, all the Gulf, those who have the subject, uh, you know, citizenship, or even the term is actually wrong for them, but anyhow, uh, they have the nationality of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Gulf monarchies. Uh, they are badly seen in all over the Arab world because they, they are seen as people, you know, very privileged, and they behave with their migrants, whether from Arab origins or Asian, of course, even much worse, so in, in terrible manners. So they are not liked, you know. That, but that's, that's different. You wouldn't necessarily have the same, for instance, you have had a huge uh, uh, movements of population. If you take a country like Lebanon, for instance, where close to uh, one half of the population now are those Syrian refugees, in any other country, this would have created you know, a huge uh, far-right, whatever, uh, movements against it. And yet, I mean, it's very, very, I mean, the, the effects of that, of course, there are a lot of problems, but there are nothing proportional to the, the size of this population of refugees. Just look at Europe huh, making all this fuss about a number which compared to the European populations is ridiculous when you compare to, to even compare to, to what you have in Turkey, actually. So I think it's, uh, it, it really, it's not a, a general thing. And there is an issue of racism uh, to, I mean, uh, anti-black racism. And that's why I said one should not, I mean, there, there you have a, 
anti-black, you, you have it even in the, in, in the one, or one of the countries where you have this connection, it's Mauritania, where you have it, uh, you know, very, very prominently. So there is a history of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of racism, of slavery. I mean, slavery was not only Western slavery, if you want to slave trade, but you had also one uh, on the Arab side. So you have, I mean, one have to has to acknowledge this, uh, this, uh, this legacy. Oh, I wasn't dismissing it. Yes, yes, or not. Maybe we can take one more question. <laughs> two more, well, two more then. <laughs> Or three, I mean, I don't mind taking, you, you'll tell us, Koyo, whether we need to stop and wait. And this question's about Lebanese in West Africa. Can you state your name for the archive? Nancy. Um, and I was just wondering, in terms of um, the Lebanese diaspora in West Africa, do you feel that the same themes of racial discrimination and um, alienation and that sense of... Um, identity is similar to maybe what black Africans go through in Europe and across maybe the Caribbean? I guess it's about comparison of, between the Lebanese in West Africa and Africans in, in Europe. In terms of acceptance and in terms of integrating into society. Mm. Um, would the same themes be present yeah, no. for Lebanese in West Africa? No, it's extremely different. Uh, I mean, uh, African migration to Europe, uh, Africans are migrating as workers, and they are at the, the, the bottom of the social ladder. Uh, the Lebanese did not migrate to Africa as workers, and they were not at the bottom. No, they were middle, middle, middle people. They were intermediates. They, I mean, we, we try to... to to describe the, the role they played. So there's no, no, no similarity there, I think. This is quite different. So do you feel that they wouldn't, the discrimination, the sense of discrimination and the difficulty of belonging in, 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 belonging in an African society is different or difficult for, is it more difficult or? In Europe, you mean? No, I mean, when Le Lebanese, for the Lebanese in West Africa to integrate, is it yeah. more difficult or yeah. is it similar? I already expressed myself uh, on this, if Andrew has uh, something. I think it depends on, on, on the attitude, the, the willingness or not to integrate. You, you're not integrated like this, uh, just you, you fade uh, away in the, in, the, in the decor. No, I mean, uh, you, it's a matter of attitude. If, if you behave, if you want to integrate, you can, I think. And the, 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 the Africans are not racist in that regard. That's not, not true. But if your attitude is one of, uh, of uh, is itself, you know, one which is racist, integration will not happen. Or the, the role you're playing, you, the way you look at the societies with which you, you deal, if you are just looking at them in an exploitative manner, which is the case for a lot of, of the Lebanese diaspora in, in Africa, integration will not happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, even if you're there for, you've been there for, for uh, for two generations or whatever, if you're seen as those who are there exploiting us and precisely having their villas in, 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 uh, in France on the Côte d'Azur or something like this, this won't get to integration, you know, that's different. So it, it really depends on the social, political uh, positioning of, of, uh, of, of people. 
I mean, I think one comparison you can draw is kind of between West and East Africa, and looking at Asians in East Africa and Lebanese in West Africa. And, you know, Gilbert kind of hinted at that earlier. Um, and clearly, I mean, you know, the Lebanese haven't been expulsed in the way that Asians were in the 70s in Uganda and Tanzania. So, I mean, there is a difference there in terms of just looking at kind of sub-Saharan Africa and the fate of different migrant groups, different minority groups. Um, Sorry, just a response to what Mr. Ashar was saying about, you're really putting a focus on um, internal locus of control. So all of the power is within you know, Lebanese hands, our hands. But just an example, again, it differs from case to case and I can definitely see where you're coming from. But for example, not too long ago, um, a third generation Lebanese man in the north of Nigeria who spoke fluent Hausa, you know, fully integrated, decided to run for office so he decided to run to be a minister and had to pull out after several, several death threats because of his death threats, because of his being Lebanese. And I mean, coming as well from someone who's been there for 17 years in Nigeria, I've never seen, I, I was never seen as Nigerian. I was seen as white, you know, I was, even though when I came here, I realized I wasn't white. <laughs> that was surprising. <laughs> so yeah, that's just an example. I mean, from my own personal experiences as to why it's not always an internal locus, but also external, very much externalized as well. Um, yeah, let, let me just comment on that. Uh, but that's because Nigeria has seen recent wave, I mean, this has been the continuous thing, and this has created a pattern for the Lebanese there. So of course, you, I mean, wh whoever you are, even if you, know, you don't correspond to this pattern, you would be part of the pattern because of your belonging, color, etc. If in countries where you don't have this pattern, which is the case of Senegal, the story is very different. Because today, I mean, in Senegal, you don't have this kind of, of relation for the, 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 I don't know the, I mean, one of the reasons is that it hasn't been a country of, uh, of traffic, of, uh, of making money uh, in, in recent uh, decades. Uh, it's not a major land for that. And people would go rather for, for instance, a country like Nigeria, which is an oil country, a huge major oil country, is a huge attraction for, for everyone going for money. You know? And that's, that creates a pattern which, which, of which people like you may be victims, indeed. But you have to think. And in, instead of blaming the, the natives, if you want, uh, for her, uh, try to think, why are they reacting like this? Why do they have this attitude? Look at the, the role of, uh, of, of so many people. You, you have this problem, like, you know, you can have, I mean, a few bad apples, you can say, can, can spoil the whole, the whole basket, okay? Now, even if you believe that this is, there are just a few bad apples, but the fact is that there exist, and you have to take that into consideration. So I just wanted to show yeah. why yeah. it's not about Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I just wanted to, oh, it's wonderful to have you, Gilbert and Andrew, and of course, Omar. Um, and um, as a, uh, kind of organizer of these talks and uh, I've been extremely uh, interested of course in discussing these migration routes and I've been very uh, 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 curious to hear about this anecdote about this Lebanese anthropologist mm. that happened to him in Ghana and uh, and somehow, uh, 
I really think that uh, what uh, Lina said in the video uh, about there is a love-hate relationship and what one should retain in that phrase, it's relationship, I really think. And, and uh, whatever nature it is, there has been, I mean, you've been, you were talking about the recent migration, but uh, uh, Gilbert is here. There is, I mean, I think there is already a fifth generation that was mm -hmm. pre-First World War. Yes. And, uh, and colonialism, of course, has a big, I mean, is at the heart, I mean, French colonialism is at the heart of all this circulation and all this, uh, um, uh, exchange, so to speak. I just wanted to. I'm just. I will just say a few things that may not be related to each other, but just I wanted to to uh, put them out there in the on the floor. Um, Andrea, I think you were saying that there is this perception of the of the black African as. Uh, as an intruder because the French brought black uh, uh, West African soldiers. Yeah. I really have to say black African soldiers into, into uh, uh, Syria, which I really have to call Syria because for if we go deep down, Lebanon is a construct. It's, it's, I mean, the whole area, I mean, French constructed Lebanon, it's all called Syria and this is not, by accident that in certain areas, uh, people from that region are called Syro-Libanais, mm. mainly. So just to say that this, there, is a, uh, there is a small community of Vietnamese uh, uh, in, in many West African countries. I don't know if you sort of digressively looked at it during your research. And, and that Vietnamese community in, uh, in West Africa also came through the French wars, through uh, uh, the, uh, the, the colonial cartography, basically. Mm. And, and I really think that when you talk integration, a word that I don't like, when you talk uh, uh, settling, I mm. would say, settling down somewhere, um, I'm very concerned about your story, because as I say, uh, like uh, Gilbert, it really depends on where, and it also depends on the, on the emotional and psychological construct of the country. In Senegal, I mean, there is, we cannot live without the Lebanese as much as the Lebanese cannot live without us. I mean, it's so much part of the, social, cultural, linguistic fabric that uh, the identification as Senegalese for even second generation Lebanese is quite immediate because you, you very much, uh, in, I mean, part of the, are part of the, the social narrative because you have a role in the society or you have roles in the society that you take up. Uh, the other thing that I'm interested in and why uh, I, I wanted this discussion to happen, not only to, you know, to, to highlight these, these, uh, these connections, is also, I think, I don't know, Gilbert or Andrew was, uh, was, uh, was mentioning that this uh, 
perception of an image of uh, being a Lebanese, as you said, meaning being a trader, meaning being there only to make money. I think this is a, this is a, a very uh, limiting image also, both from the Lebanese communities as much as from the, from the local communities, in a way that there is a, a, a sort of a narrowness of perception of what the different communities produce and what uh, people are. I mean, uh, Gilbert is here, he's not a trader, even though he comes from a trading family with a father that was forced into trading without wanting that. So, and also, I've, and I think that there is, uh, what is currently happening in the artistic landscape of, uh, of Lebanon with uh, a thriving artistic uh, uh, community and production and output is also something that uh, we would like to relate to uh, the spaces and the, and, the, and the production in Africa because there is, I think there is a lot to exchange there. Yeah. There is a lot more to be done uh, around that also. So, I just uh, wanted to say that. Thank you, Koyo. Maybe we will leave, I'll leave the last words to you. It was a very nice me. last word. Or will we just stop there? And yeah. uh, thank you both. Thank and you. thank you all very much. For being here.